turn your Bible, please, to James, the third chapter, James chapter 3. And again, we want to go into this precious passage. And you remember that yesterday we were talking about James. We didn't really get through with the third chapter. And so I want to just go back and, and look at it just a, a little bit more. And then we'll go into chapter 4. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we're very, very much aware that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. And we dare not in any way approach the Word without asking the Holy Spirit to guide us, to be our teacher, to show us glimpses of truth that we couldn't possibly get from the Word unless the Spirit of the Holy, of the Holy One show us. And so do it today, Father. And whet our appetite, not only for the Word, but for prayer to find out the mysteries of the Word and compassion to go out and share the Word with others that they might be saved and enjoy the thrills and blessings of the life of Christ here and the life of Christ forever. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm, one of my favorite songs is brethren we have met to worship and there's a phrase out of that song that impresses itself over and over on my heart all is vain unless the spirit of the holy one come down all of our reading of the bible all of our going to church all of our good works all of our going and knocking on doors and trying to win people to christ all is vain unless the spirit of the holy one do the work and so let's ask him to be our guide and our tutor and our teacher as we study the book of James by way of review let's remember that James is not a plan of salvation it's a plan of service I suppose that you could take the book of James because it's the powerful Word of God and win somebody to Jesus from it I know you can from Genesis I know you can from Exodus I know you can from Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. You can from Psalms. You certainly can from Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Romans, John, any passage, any chapter, any book, because all of the book is written by the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure you can do that with the book of James. There are certain passages in here that can easily help, uh, help folks understand their lostness and that they need to turn to Jesus. But basically, the book of James is like the book of Proverbs. It's a book of truths put together. Not always in an organized way, but I don't mean James was unorganized, but I mean it's difficult for us to organize it because there are so many special, wonderful truths in this book that just are true, whether they were in this context or in another context. Now, James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He never referred to himself like that. He never got on buddy-buddy terms with Jesus. He said, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. And even though the Lord Jesus may be our best friend, and we talk to him day by day, we must never get on buddy-buddy terms with him. He is God. He is the Holy One, and He's the one before whom we will stand one day to give an account 
of what we've done in the body. And so let's have a holy reverence and a holy awe before him. Now James writes with one theme in mind, and that theme is in chapter 1, verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. The whole thrust of the five chapters of James is that you may be perfect. That word perfect doesn't mean sinless. It means mature. It means grown up. It means somebody who is no longer a babe in Christ, no longer carnal, but a spiritual man, a spiritual woman, a spiritual Christian. And, and so he's saying that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. I want to write to you about the mature man and suffering. That's what he did in chapter 1. The growing Christian, the grown-up Christian, the maturing Christian, and suffering. Suffering is part of life. It's going to be there. Secondly, in chapter 2, the mature man and service. Our service needs to be according to the law of love, according to the law of liberty, and according to the law of life as over against death. And in that section, he discusses faith without works is dead faith. And so we need to be sure that the faith we exhibit to others is living faith, not a dead faith, but a faith that is vital, virile, that has something to it, has an oomph to it and a spark to it. And the only way that can be true is if Jesus is operating through us. And then that faith becomes alive and real. In chapter 3, he's talking about the mature man in speech, and he says, if any man offend not in word, that man's perfect. <laughs> that man's grown up. If you've gotten to a point where you do not offend people, you do not offend God, you do not offend your children, you do not offend self in your word, in your speech, then you're on your way toward maturity. Because the tongue is the big, big problem that all of us have. Our tongue is a world of iniquity set on fire of hell. And he makes two illustrations. He says, we can tame the horse, we can direct the ship, but we can't tame the tongue. And he makes these four statements. In chapter 3, verse 5, the tongue is a little member, boasteth great things. Number 2, verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Verse 7, the third statement, for every kind of beast and bird and serpent, things in the sea is tamed, and so on. But verse 8, but the tongue can no man tame. Put a circle around the word man. No man can tame the tongue. I can't tame mine, you can't tame yours, but there is somebody that can tame the tongue. Who is that? Jesus. The Holy Spirit today can tame the tongue. Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. One of the problems concerning the taming of the tongue and the in, in, indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that that's not a once and for all experience. Salvation is a once and for all experience. We're saved once and for all. But the taming of the tongue has to be done day by day, hour by hour. Just like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not a once and for all experience. Those folks who talk about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as if it were a second work of grace misunderstand. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the first work of grace and is once and for all. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. 
And if anybody should come to you and say, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? If you're saved, if you've been born again and you know the scripture, what you ought to say is, yes, I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That occurred the day I was saved. I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the re-indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something we need day by day because we have leaky vessels. And the Holy Spirit needs to fill us day by day for service. And really, the Holy Spirit doesn't come down. He comes into because he's already there and we allow him into the operative rooms of our life into control of our hands into the control of our feet into the control of our mind into the control of our playroom into the control of all the areas of our lives because he's already there you don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit if you're saved he's there that's how you got saved the Holy Spirit came into your heart and by his instrumentality, he regenerated you and, and was the agent of, of your being born again into the family of God. He baptized you by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And that water baptism was only a symbol of the spiritual baptism you've already had. But we need to be re-indwelled day by day by day by day by the Holy Spirit. And he's the one that tames the tongue. He's the one that tames our our temper the Holy Spirit is the one that does that now look in verse 5 uh, verse uh, uh, 9 therefore therewith bless we God even the Father and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings my brethren these things ought not to be doth a fountain send forth at the same place uh, sweet water and bitter can a fig tree my brethren bear olive berries either of vine figs so can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh now he's saying if you've got if the holy spirit is in control of your life he's going to proceed out of everything you do he's going to direct what you do he will direct your love he will direct your compassion he will direct your song he'll give you a song in your soul while everybody else is singing you can't just sit there you may not have a good voice. You may not be able to carry a tune in a bucket. But he'll give you a song in your soul and it'll have to come out somehow. The Holy Spirit inside of you brings these things out. Now if all that comes out of you is bitterness. Or if sometimes you bless God and other days you curse God. There's a problem. A deep, serious problem. The Holy Spirit is not in control of your life or else you've never been born again. One of those two things is true. And so when you can easily say damn, you can easily connect God's name with that, or you can easily say little four-letter words, or you can talk barnyard language, or you find it easy to have all these worldly words in your vocabulary, you just write it down, something is wrong, terribly wrong. What is it? Either you've never been saved never been born again or the Holy Spirit is not in control in your life brother Roger told us about yesterday being in a restaurant and hearing these people he said were religious uh, taking the name of God calling on the name of God and cursing and when he talked to them they just shut up I came in the restaurant a few minutes later and I didn't hear any of that those same people were there but I didn't hear any of it 
You see, they had been reminded and prompted. If they'd ever been saved, somehow the Holy Spirit whispered in their heart, and they stopped it. One time, Brother Roger and I were in a revival meeting in Owensboro, and we uh, went into a hotel to have breakfast. And we were sitting there, just the two of us, and over here was a table full of men. And those men, I, I don't know, I'm not their judge, they may have been just businessmen, they may have been men that were godless and never went to church. I sort of doubt that because of what happened. It's very possible that those men may have been Christians. They weren't acting like it. They may have been people that go to church all the time. They may have been deacons and Sunday school teachers. I don't know what they were. But when they started doing that, they started cursing and swearing and talking filthy and all that. And it was, and it was right out loud. Loud enough so everybody in the restaurant could hear them. Well, Roger and I decided that if they could do that, we could sing. This was in a public restaurant. So we just sat over there and started singing about Jesus. And you could hear a pin drop. They stopped. And after a while, when they stopped, we stopped. And I didn't hear any more of that. It all stopped. <laughs> See? Well, now, we have as much right as they do. We have as much right to bless God as they do to curse God. We'll try that sometime in a restaurant. Uh, nowadays, the, the times have changed a little bit. The restaurant owner may come up and say to you, you can't name the name of Jesus in here unless you're cursing. <laughs> if anybody tells you you can't name the name of Jesus, just say, well, what about them over there? They were doing it. Couldn't we do that same thing? Only we, we're blessing him and they're cursing him. See, but the problem is, is, the problem is a matter of the heart. Out of the heart proceed the issues of life. And the only one that can tame the tongue is the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't begin with the tongue. He begins deeper than the tongue because the problem is deeper than the tongue. Out of the heart proceed the issues of life. And so James is talking about growing toward maturity. And he says, if you do not offend with your tongue, you're on your way toward growing toward maturity. But remember, you better stay green and grow than get ripe and rot. You've never arrived. Don't ever decide, well, I haven't cursed for a year. I haven't said any profanity. I haven't allowed any of those vulgarisms. I haven't been hurtful to others for three years. You don't reach the safety zone until you get home. I think it was George Mueller who used to pray day by day, Lord, Lord, help me to not be a mean old man. You see, you can go through a period where you're okay and then you think you've arrived. And that's tragic. And you can spend the latter part of your years with a messed up life. I've known people who have served God 5, 10, 15 years and you'd think they'll never, never allow the world to get in and control them. Suddenly, the devil leaps upon them in, an, in a vulnerable time and they forget who they are and what they are and their testimony is gone their life is gone they spend years away from God so we must remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us power to resist the devil we'll get into that in chapter 4 there's one other truth in chapter 3 Verses 14 to 18, 
the exhortation of truth, and we don't have time to deal with it, but let me just look, let's notice it. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good life his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Now in this section, wisdom and truth are somewhat the same. This wisdom or truth descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonical. What wisdom? What wisdom is he talking about? Verse 14, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Friend, it is possible for a Christian to get so confused that he thinks his envying spirit of envy and spirit of bitterness are godly. You see, we might take a stand against evil and in taking that stand allow our spirit to get so bitter. The stand against evil is right, but we're not operating it in wisdom. And we've allowed ourselves to become bitter and sensual and diabolical. And we're not pleasing the Lord and we're not going to really accomplish anything. But the wisdom or the truth that is from above is the opposite of that. Look at verse 16. For where envying and strife is, are there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is sevenfold. I like the way the scripture uses numbers. Even without trying. The wisdom that is from above has seven characteristics. It is first pure. It is peaceable. It is gentle. It is easy to be entreated. It is full of mercy and good fruits. It is without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them that make peace. Again, he's dealing with the expression of our lives toward outward circumstances. The first part of this third chapter, he's saying, don't everybody rush into a teaching position because you're going to be judged more severely. You'll be judged by men more severely. Anybody that's up front, people try to take pot shots at them. The price of leadership is loneliness. The most lonely, if he allows himself, the most lonely man in America today is President Reagan. No matter what he does, half the United States doesn't like him. And every week, they publish a new popularity poll, and they say, well, this week, only 39% of the people like what he does. And 72% of the people think he ought not to run again. All those kind of things. And he has to lead that. Same thing was true with Mr. Carter. Same thing was true with Mr. Kennedy. Make a difference who the president is. Now, some have more conservative policies, and some are dare to speak with godly tongue. And I thank the Lord for that. I didn't appreciate Mr. Reagan gulping that beer and having it put on the front page of the papers. But I do appreciate the stands he's taken about prayer in school. I thank God for that. That there's somebody somewhere in a big high office who is willing to acknowledge that what America needs is to pray. And he declared this the year of the Bible. And immediately the Civil Liberties Union and a bunch of liberals and some Baptists jumped on him and said you can't make you can't mix religion and the state and all that foolish stuff. Brother, that's of the devil. Our nation was built by godly men on principles that are of the word of God. 
and right in the middle of the Constitutional Convention, it almost broke up in a big wrangle and one man stood and said, folks, it is obvious that we're not going to be able to build this nation without talking to God about it. Let's adjourn for a prayer meeting. And they prayed and they came back and presented to the American colonies the greatest document the world has ever known that would govern people. A government of the people, by the people, for the people. God give us Supreme Court justices that can get to an understanding spirit of what the original Constitution was all about. Now, be careful. Don't rush into a teaching position because you're going to have some lonely times. And people are going to judge you. Secondly, you're going to have to give a big account to God. You're going to have to give an account to God about your leadership, how you led other people, how you taught other people, how you taught the Word of God with your tongue. The second section deals with our tongue in common places, in everyday life. The third section deals with our tongue in relationship to decisions and judgmentalism and so on and having to do with wisdom whether we take a stand against evil how do we do it do we do it with bitterness do we do it with, do we do it with wrath do we do it with anger or do it we do it do we do it with the wisdom that is from above and the sevenfold description of that wisdom is here now that's all we can deal with in chapter 3 it's so full we could spend really a whole month studying just that chapter maybe a whole year verse by verse now we come to chapter 4 and in this chapter uh, I want to I want to read it there are 17 verses in chapter 4 let's listen from where come wars and fightings among you come they not here even of your lusts that war in your members ye lust and have not ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain ye fight in war yet ye have not because you ask not you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy, who art thou that judgest another? Come now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will, do such, we will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the next day or tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. In this section, 
The whole 17 verses deal with the theme, the perfect man and separation. Separation, the doctrine of separation is taught all the way through the scripture. And the last verse is perhaps the key to understanding this passage. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now James has a very practical approach in this chapter. He asks about five questions. And those five questions form the outline of this chapter. Let me give them to you. Sort of number them in your Bible or write them down. These five questions outline this, uh, this chapter. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. From where come wars and fightings among you? That's the first question. Verse 4. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? That's the second question. The third question, verse 5. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain? And then he lists several scriptures, and we'll talk about them in a moment. The fourth question is in verse 12. Who art thou that judgeth another? Who art thou that judgeth another? The fifth question is in verse 14. For what is your life? Now, around these five questions, James arranges this entire chapter. And I think we can arrange our thoughts concerning the perfect man and separation from the world. Right at the beginning, James says, where do wars and fightings come from among you? I guess we could apply that same question universally. Where do wars and fightings come from? Why? is Russia, why do Russia and America seem to be right at the point of fighting? What's the problem? All right, selfishness. Why do you and I fight with each other? Now, here, I, I know that there are certain principles that are worth fighting for. But remember, if you're either on the right or the wrong side of a principle. There are certain principles that are worth fighting for. And I'm not saying that we ought not to fight. If somebody breaks into your house and tries to hurt some of your family, I think you have a perfect right to resist that. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. <laughs> One of the problems, and I, I don't speak as a specialist, and there are many here that probably may disagree with this, but one of our big, big problems in Vietnam is we, we quit fighting a war on, uh, on, based on principle and started fighting it based on politics. And we messed up. Now, we need to guard our lives and be sure that the stands we take are stands that measure up to principles. Godly Christ-filled principles in the case of a Christian. And so James says, where do all these fightings and confusions come from? Where does confusion come from in a church? Where does confusion come from in your home when husbands and wives have to split up? Where does confusion come from between parents and children, teenage kids? 
Are these moms and dads really mean old hags? Or what's the problem? Where does all that come from? When kids go out and play and they get mad at each other, where does all that come from? When Christians won't speak to one another, where does that come from? Where does all this war and confusion come from? James is dealing with that. Now he's talking about the perfect man and separation from worldliness. The whole theme of this chapter is about that. Let's look at that. Come they not even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it on your lusts. Now basically he's talking to save people. And he says the problem is you've tried to take matters in your own hands. You didn't commit it to the Lord. You ask and ask amiss. Lord, I've just got to have this thing. Instead of, Lord, is this your will for me? Now that's true whether it's an argument between husband and wife, teenagers and parents, families that live next door to each other, Christians in the church. Christians, church members and their pastor, incidentally in, in, the, in the work of the Lord, beloved, God underscored the authority of influence of the pastor. He underscored that several places. You read the 13th chapter of Hebrews and at least three times in that scripture, we're told to submit ourselves to those that are in authority over us and pray for them. There are some that have the spiritual rule over us. That doesn't mean they're dictators or tyrants. That doesn't mean they're the big boss. But it means that that person has been placed in authority by God. It's like in the, in the military. What kind of an enlisted man, what kind of an enlisted man is going to be able to take a stand against the principle discipline of a man who is his superior officer. There is in life there are people placed in authority. Parents are in authority over their children. Whether the kids like it or don't like it. Their time's coming. One day they'll be parents and they will have authority over their children. Now that authority that a mother and father have, and that authority that a general has or a lieutenant has, that authority that a pastor has, is not something that can be abused or it's taken or it goes to our head and we simply say, well, we've got to run everything around us. But it is an authority so that things can be done decently and in order. When kids are growing up in the home, God gave to mom and dad a spiritual judgment, wisdom, and authority that is over their kids. Wise are those young people who are taught to respect mother and daddy. That's the reason from early childhood, I think you ought to teach your children to say yes sir and no sir, yes ma'am and no ma'am. You would say that's pretty old fashioned. Yeah, but it, it puts something in their minds and hearts that makes them realize there's somebody over them. There's somebody in authority over them. 
instead of yeah and no. I don't want to do that. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. If kids have a tough time respecting the authority of their mother and daddy, they'll have a tough time respecting the authority of God. In the church, if God's people have a tough time respecting the spiritual authority of their pastor, they'll have a tough time respecting the spiritual authority of God. That's the way life is. And, sometime, and this scripture says, you ask and you have not because you ask amiss that you might consume it on your own lusts. In other words, you're just asking selfishly. You put your finger on it a while ago. You're asking selfishly. I got to have this. I got to have this. Is it right for a child to pray for a bicycle? Certainly. But not to tell God he's got to give him a bicycle. I don't see anything wrong with a child being taught. You can pray about everything. And, but you've got to pray. Now, Lord, if I really need this bicycle, if it is in your will and you know that it's wise for me, and you know that I'm not going to get killed on it, and you know that I'm not going to hurt other people on it, and you know that I need it, then, Lord, I ask you to give it to me. Same way with a new car. Lord, I need this car. Not just so I can keep up with the Joneses because the people next door got a new car, but, Lord, my old car, my old trap's about to fall apart, and I, and, and I don't want to pay all these bills on it and so on, and, and Lord, I, I want to use my money more wisely. I want to be a tither. And uh, I, I can, I've worked out my budget so I found out that I can still tithe my income to you, Lord, and help keep up the missionaries around the world and serve the Lord and help keep up the work in the church. And still, I can make the payments on the car. And Lord, if it's your will, let me have that car. Pray like that. And if the Lord says no, say, yes, sir. That's the way we're to pray. And James says, why do you have fightings? Because you don't pray like that. You don't ask like that. You, I want my own way, but I'm going to get it. That's what a little kid does. And James says, that's immature. You want to grow toward Christ-likeness? You want to be a mature person? You want to grow to be a real somebody for God? Then pray about everything. And don't demand, but pray and wait. And pretty soon you'll find all these warrings and confusions and so on dying down and becoming unimportant. Husbands and wives are not going to fight and feud with each other over things that don't amount to a hill of beans. Churches are not going to have separations and schisms and problems over things that don't amount to anything because there's going to be a respect for authority. And kids and their parents will get along because parents will recognize that their children are human beings with rights, that they're going to grow up and they need to be treated as precious people that one day are going to be people of authority. And so they deal with them in that way. Where does all this confusion come from? It comes from selfishness. It comes from the lust within one's own life to have his own way when what we need to do is submit our way to the Lord. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to be? Lord, what wilt thou have me to say? Brother Roger was greatly inspired when he wrote that wonderful song. Lord, what wilt thou have me?
to be. All right, the second question is the most important question in this chapter. He, look at verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteress, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And our time is going to be up in just a minute. And I just want you to look at verse 4 very briefly. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Let me ask you something. What is the difference between being a friend of the world and being a friend to the world? One little preposition makes a big difference. The Bible is teaching here, and, and the Holy Spirit is writing through James. He says, you better not be a friend of the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a friend to the world. The greatest friendship you can throw, show to the world is give them Jesus. The greatest way you can ever be a friend to anybody is give them something that can help them when you're not there anymore. Give them Jesus. Peter and John said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. I give you Jesus. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Put your faith in Jesus. Not in us, but in Him. But our problem as Christians is that we become a friend of the world. And we get on buddy-buddy terms with the world. And the world rushes its tides, like, like standing at the, at the ocean. And the tide is coming in, and coming in, and coming in. And the world comes in, and in, and in. And pretty soon, the world overwhelms you, and you're not even ready. You glue your eyes on television. You go to the movies and feed yourselves on all these things that are put out by people that hate God that are adulterers and adulteresses and whoremongers and homosexuals. Now listen, we need to be a friend to the adulterers. We need to be a friend to the adulteresses. We need to be a friend to the homosexuals. I don't believe God ever wanted us to get them under our thumb and pinch them and push them down and laugh at them. God wants us to be a friend to them. That is, love them, and help them to Jesus, and help them with their problems, help them understand how to be forgiven, help them understand God's plan. But be careful when you become a friend of them. And pretty soon, the difference is not as great. And you come on buddy-buddy terms with them, and people begin to identify you with them because you have forgotten that their lifestyle is erroneous. Their lifestyle is wrong. We need to be a friend to them, but not a friend of them. We need to be a friend to the world. Nothing wrong with being a friend to a movie actor. Give him Jesus. Ho uh, 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 Harlan McGinnis. Harlan McGinnis, you've had him here. You know him. Wonderful, wonderful prince. He used to play for Erdos 92 in Louisville. He played his, his guitar. What's Foster's name? Foster Brooks. He was a, he was a, a Foster Brooks was a friend. Uh, Dale Evans was, they were all, they all played together. Foster Brooks came to Miami 
Maybe, maybe, maybe Brother McGinnis told you about it when he was here. Foster Brooks came to Miami. Now, Homer, uh, uh, Brother McGinnis could have gone out there to see Foster and talked about the good old days and, and just kept his mouth shut and, and thought, well, boy, I'm in the presence of a celebrity. I'm glad I'm a friend. I'm glad that we're friends and, and just kept his mouth shut. But he went out there purposely to try to win Foster to Jesus. He didn't succeed, but Foster knew that a witness for God had been in his presence. If you're going to be a friend to movie actors like that, fine. But if you're going to make movie actors your pinups, and all the trash of the world is going to be, they're going to be your idols and heroes, then you have a problem. And it's going to tear down your spiritual power and authority, and you won't even realize it. You won't even know it. There's a difference between being a friend to the world and a friend of the world. Do you see it? Now this will gov govern what we do with our time, our talents, our money. Every time I see a young person who could really be something, really accomplish something, maybe he plays the piano, maybe he plays the trumpet like this guy does, maybe he's got a personality that could count for Jesus. Uh, I don't know, something God just put in my heart, uh, some, some kind of a, of a, something that reaches out and wraps itself around young people and claims them for God. I, every time I see one, I pray, Lord, make that young man, that young woman, something that will honor God. That's the way I feel about this young man right here. Lord, make him something that will really honor Jesus. That's the way I feel, feel about those twins. That's the way I feel about those beautiful girls you've got in this church. Lord, make them something for God. And I get upset in my soul when parents give them dance lessons and send them to the movies so that they just watch these gulp up, gulp, 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 and all that stuff that comes in, all that trash, all that, all those foolish standards, it gets inside of them. And when those kids begin to play in combo bands, they jump around in the rock music era. And instead of going on with God, they get sidetracked and they begin to give their gifts and talents to the things of the world. Oh, God, help. I long to see young men and young women who put their life on the line for Jesus. That's all the time we have this morning. I wish I could go on, but you wouldn't stay. <laughs> and folks, Remember, we'll, we'll start over here another time, but remember the rest of this chapter, the book of James, uh, chapter 4, is talking about separation from the world unto God. Asking those four questions. Study it. Let the Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. Thank you, Bill Watson.